Today we're continuing our sermon series through Matthew. If you want to turn in your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew 8, 18 through 20, uh, 27. I do want to throw a question or a statement out to you this morning that will be the catalyst for our sermon. Have you ever heard the statement, have you ever heard the question, have you ever heard the statement, God is a crutch for those who are weak? God is a crutch for those who are weak. It might sound slightly different depending on your circumstance. It might sound like this. The only reason you believe in God is because you can't explain the bad things that happen to you. Or maybe it sounded like the statement, the only reason in a belief in God is to try to explain the absurdity of the universe. Now you've been bathed in this line of thinking because you are children of the Enlightenment. We're all products of the Enlightenment. And Enlightenment philosophers struggled and wrestled with these questions. This is what there were responses to. Why? Because Enlightenment philosophers struggled to understand the seemingly universal acknowledgement of a deity expanding across the globe on every continent and among all people. Enlightenment philosophers could not understand why there was not even one atheist tribe, according to anthropology. They couldn't wrap their minds around that. Sigmund, Sigmund Freud, one of the pillars of secularism, answered the God question by stating that human beings sought to impose personality on impersonal forces of nature in order that they might be able to control nature. According to Freud and to other thinkers of the time, religion was a tool to control nature. Religion was a tool to make life more comfortable. That was their answer when posed with the God dilemma of anthropology. Today's passage in Matthew says something very, very, very different. That God is not controllable. That God is not a tool for an easy life. God actually calls us to a great deal. We talked about the adventure of the gospel, the adventure of discipleship last week. Most importantly, it is actually God who is in control. We do not control him. We're going to be in Matthew 8 today, so please stand for the reading of the word of God as we look at the text. Matthew 8, 18. Help me out in the back a little if you can. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side, that is of the lake, and a scribe came to him and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep, and they went and spoke, woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Are you a little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this? that even the winds and the sea obey him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. You may be seated. 
Father God, we ask for the Spirit's presence today, Lord, that you would awaken our souls, arise them from the great storm of sin, and may we see the peace that is offered in the midst of the storm in Jesus. In your Son's name I pray, amen. We begin this morning looking at the cost of discipleship, which I think is fitting considering we looked at discipleship last week. I say it at most baptisms. If you've seen me do a baptism here, I say it. Is that confessing Christ, confessing Christ is not the end of the journey. Confessing Christ is the beginning of it. And it can be a costly profession. The first martyr of the church, the deacon Stephen, was given a duty by the church of Jerusalem to care for the orphan and the widow, to care for the poor. But Stephen, knowing Jesus, cared just as much for their financial poverty as he did their spiritual poverty. Stephen desired that even the poor would have the good news about salvation through Jesus. So Stephen cared and he shared, never divorcing the two. But Stephen did so in an environment that was hostile to what he shared, not what he cared. And for it, Stephen was killed. Stephen began a long list of disciples who would count the cost. The famous pastor, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, is described in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. Bonhoeffer lived in Germany during the rise of the Nazis. And as Nazis began to abuse minority populations, Bonhoeffer would not remain silent, calling the church to stand for something or fall for anything. The state church in Germany failed miserably. When the train cars full of Jews would pass the churches, the congregants would sing louder to drown out the screams. They responded to evil not by addressing it, but being complacent to it. They neither shared nor cared. And for fear of thinking we have progressed past that church, I can promise you, as we look at our culture, there are plenty of train cars full of suffering people that we scroll past, we swipe left, make excuses that someone else will handle it. We're so used to driving past the wrecks of life because we're convinced ourselves that the best way for us to live life is to fill every moment with events and stuff instead of life and service. We tell ourselves we can't change the world when that was never the goalpost set by the Father, maybe we just start by changing one person's world, just once. For many Christians throughout history, their faith was cheap, for the cost of discipleship was far too high. That is what Jesus is bringing to the forefront of these would-be disciples this morning. Hear their call again, Matthew 8, 18 through 20. Now when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side of the lake. And a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. There is a cost to follow Jesus. What is the cost? It might be your home, as described in this section. It might be the lack of welcoming neighbors. Jesus' hometown didn't even believe in Jesus. They questioned by saying, isn't this the son of Joseph? 
It might be your reputation that it'll cost you. It might be your life. It might be your life. The question for you is the same question that was posed to the scribe that morning. How much is your faith worth? How much is your faith worth? For those of you that are, might be following along in your bulletin and you might be missing a lot of fill in the blanks, I had two services this week and two other Bible studies I had to prep, so I apologize. This was done late last night. <laughs> How much is your faith worth? It's the same question that Jesus asks the next disciple who approached him. Matthew 8, 21 through 22. Another disciple said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. A little harsh there, Jesus. Guy just lost his dad. And you're now saying, no, you can't take the time to bury him. I, I don't think Jesus is being mean here. But I think Matthew puts this here to prove a point that is associated to the scribe story. Here's the point. Following Jesus is not a matter of convenience. Following Jesus is not a matter of convenience. I'll go to church when I get my life right. I'll start reading my Bible when I'm done with high school and I don't have any more homework. I'll share the gospel with my friend when the timing is just perfect. I'll follow Jesus later. It's like the rich fool in Luke 12. And he told them a parable saying, The land of the rich man produced plentiful. And he thought to himself, What should I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, to, and he said I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. It's the modern call of America, right? <laughs> Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is to the one who lays up treasures for himself and not, is not rich towards God. The fool thought he had all the time in the world to be rich towards God. If we give him the benefit of the doubt, right? Let's assume it's a good farmer. And he probably goes to church, you know, every Sunday where it's convenient. And he occasionally reads his Bible from time to time but he'll really focus on getting his life right to God later when it's more convenient. You are not promised tomorrow. The question becomes, will you follow Jesus today? Even if it costs you, even if it's not convenient. If Freud thought that religion was a matter of personal convenience, he had never met Jesus. If you're hearing these words, the call is for today. May today be the day of salvation. Today is the day you repent and believe the gospel. Today is the day of new life, a new heart, a new family, and a new home. Don't put it off to when it's convenient. 
Don't believe the culture's lie that you only do things when they're convenient. You are called to more for the glory of God and for your own good. But what of the other charge of Freud? The charge that religion is a tool to control the world around us. Let's look at the story of Jesus and the waves one more time. Oh, wow. I thought I had split that. I'll read it for you if you can't see it in the back. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he, Jesus, was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And Jesus said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and sea, and there was great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the wind and the seas obey him? We see here the champion of the storm, the champion of the storm. Let me begin by setting the scene again. Jesus and his disciples get into a boat. Now, it's not a bunch of farmers getting into a boat for the first time. It's Jesus and a bunch of fishermen getting into the boat. These are guys that have literally spent, if you're just counting the hours, years of their lives on the sea. So much so, so confident is Jesus that Jesus go to, goes to sleep because he knows whose hands that he's in. But the waves come, the winds howl, and even the experience of the fishermen know that they're in trouble, and they wake sleeping Jesus. They plead for him to save them. Now, Jesus has done a lot up until this point. He has cast out demons. He's caused the lame to walk, the sick to rise. He's ministered to the crowds. But up until this point, the disciples got to be thinking, what is Jesus going to do here? Is it a Carrie Underwood moment? Is Jesus going to take the wheel? Take it from my hand. Is he going to anchor the ship? Is he going to drop a spiritual anchor onto the, onto the waves? Is he going to cast out the demons from the waves? The disciples don't know. But what the disciples don't figure is actually what he does. That's why they marvel. Can you imagine? The disciples waking up Jesus, freaked out, and Jesus' response going, Why are you afraid, oh, you a little faith? Can you imagine the fishermen, you know, the guys that spent their time on the seas thinking, Carpenter, okay, carpenter guy. This is bad. That's southern bad, that's with two syllables, okay? Bad. Jesus, we just explained, this is a storm. Look at the waves, look at the sinking ship. Look at the fishermen who don't want to be fish food. But Jesus knows who he is. Jesus rose. He rebuked. And there was shalom. No fancy Doctor Strange magic moment. But a word from a man who just arose from slumber in the middle of the storm, and peace comes. Mark actually fills in the gap to this story. We know from Mark 39 actually what Jesus says. And Jesus awoke and rebuked the winds and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the winds ceased and there was great calm. 
do the disciples do when the winds subside? They burst into applause. Yeah! Amazing! Nope. They go around and congratulate Jesus, right? They extend the right hand of fellowship. Well done. Good job. Good job, Jesus. Maybe fist bump with Thomas. Maybe they say, this is your best miracle yet. Best miracle yet, Jesus. No. No, instead, instead, they ask a question as they marvel. Their mouths are probably hanging open. What sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? Good question. What sort of man? Jesus has actually answered that question in the exact previous portion that we just read when he talked to the scribe and the guy with the dead dad. He answered it by saying that he is the son of, of man. He's the son of man. Now, while many of us might view this title as a focus on the humanity of Jesus, that is not how Jesus is using the term. He does not use this phrase as a phrase of humility. He uses it as a phrase of exaltation. The term son of man is given to us in Daniel 7, which was read this morning. Let's look at the key phrase again, Daniel 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away and his kingdom one, which shall not be destroyed. The Son of Man was a title used by Jesus to speak to his authority. We just got done with Psalms, right? This is Psalm 2 over again. It's the same echo. This is Psalm 110, this same echo. Every time you hear a guy who's given dominion by the God the Father in heaven, it's talking about Jesus, who's the Son of Man, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Great I Am. The Son of Man was the title to speak to his authority, given by the Ancient of Days, Yahweh God. So when Jesus got into an argument with the Pharisees on the Sabbath, what was Jesus' response in Luke? He said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another occasion, you know the story, Jesus heals a paralytic man that came in through the roof. And Jesus says to the guy, your sins are forgiven. And all the scribes understand the weight of that statement as they're listening on. He's blaspheming God, for the Old Testament was clear that only God can forgive sins. And Jesus knows that, and he knows their hearts. So what does Jesus say? He throws fuel on the fire. (laughs) He doesn't calm them down. Immediately, Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority 
on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. The scribes knew that Jesus was making an exclusive claim, that Jesus was putting himself opposed to no one like him, in a class all by himself. The people Jesus healed knew there was no one like the Lord. There is no one like the Lord. The disciples on the boat perceived that this Jesus is ruler over the very waves, the very deeps. R.C. Sproul writes about the disciples' reaction in his commentary. I thought I'd share that with you this morning. As human beings, we have a host of defensive mechanisms. One of these strategies is to pigeonhole everyone we meet. We all do that, right? First time we meet somebody, we pigeonhole them based on how much facial hair they have, how many visible tattoos, whether they straightened their collar this morning. I had weird thoughts about Jamie first time I met him, not going to lie. Right? <laughs> we pigeonhole people. And I was right about Jamie, by the way, if you're wondering. We make instantaneous judgments. Is this person a threat or is he peaceful? Is the person, if the person is smiling, we tend to assign him to a friendly category. If he is scowling, we put him in a different category and try to keep our distance as we pass. We categorize everyone. But when the disciples, when searching through their mental files, they could not come up with a category for Jesus, a person who can command the wind and the sea, is in a class all by himself. Only the Son of Man has dominion over it all. The ruler of heaven who proclaims that the kingdom of heaven is at hand is the only one who can calm the storms. Romans 11.36 reminds us of this. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This Jesus is the one who created the sea. The second person of the Trinity is the one who spun the wind. He has all authority over the heaven and the earth. The question is... What will you do with him? What will you do with him? For Freud, it was all bunk. Freud didn't have a category for the spiritual realm outside of superstition. And so he came up with a list of excuses for the conflation of religion on the planet. That's what Freud did. And many of the secular philosophers of the Enlightenment. He missed, though, the clear Romans 1 principle. And we see this in the rest of his writing. Freud despised the God he did not believe in. It's a really weird thing when you think about it. I don't despise leprechauns. They're not real. Okay? I'm Irish, I can say that with authority. Okay? But Freud despised the very thing he did not believe in. Straight out of Romans 1. But what about you? What will you do with the champion of the storm? Let me explain what makes Christianity different from all other world religions. All religions cost. All religions cost. Even atheistic ones. And that's a rabbit trail I'm not going down. But every religion will tell you, you need to prove yourself to a God to be accepted by a God. The cost of discipleship for the Christian is different, though. Jesus paid the cost at the cross. It is, the Christian, is the Christian life costly? Absolutely. 
but we pay a cost not to earn salvation, but because Jesus has been so good to us, has become so real to us, that the cup over, our cup overflows. To care for the hurting, the oppressed, the lonely, those in pain, pain, the orphan, the widow, is not a burden for those who are in Christ. It is an honor for those who are in Christ. Micah 6, 8 tells us, he has told you, oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Doing justice, loving kindness, and walking in humility become not a vehicle in which to attain salvation, but the fruit of salvation. Jesus loves people. Why would I not? Even at great cost to myself. And so we share and we care like Stephen, even if it costs us our lives. We call out areas of the culture that sing over the oppressed in boxcars, even if it costs our reputation and comfort. Because our comfort is not grounded in the materialism of our culture, but in the arms of our Savior. When the storms of life hit, when we are rocked by sin in a sea of destruction, Jesus did the same thing that he did at the sea. He rose, he rebuked, and he proclaimed peace. If you do not know Christ, you are in a storm in this world with no way out. The only thing certain is death, and the only thing to cling to is your own skill, and that will only get you so far in a boat with no anger in a storm. The question is, will you turn to the King of Kings? Will you turn to the Son of Man who has authority over the waves, authority over life and death? Do not do so at your own convenience. Do not make excuses, excuses even if they're legitimate ones, like burying a father. The last point on that interaction and the last point of the sermon is, is this. Christ is the only one who can tell someone to discard death because he's the only one to have defeated death. For indeed, there is no one like the Lord. Bow your heads with me.